0: The America's National Parks podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean believes the more time you spend outside together, the better. That's why they've partnered with the National Park Foundation to help you find your park and get there with family and friends. With more than 400 national parks in the U.S., there's beautiful surprises to be found in every corner of the country. There's probably one closer than you think. Be an outsider with L.L. Bean. God has cared for these trees, saved them from drought, disease, avalanches, and a thousand tempests and floods, but he cannot save them from fools. John Muir I'm Jason Epperson, and today on America's National Parks, a thousand mile walk to the Gulf with John Muir. Known as John of the Mountains and father of the national parks, legendary naturalist John Muir was far ahead of his time, holding ideals that many are just coming around to today. Muir undertook a daring adventure in 1867 that led him to the path of natural enlightenment. Just a few years after the Civil War, after recovering from an injury at a sawmill, he decided that he wanted to explore the world. He left his life in Indiana, and walked 1,000 miles to Florida without any real direction or purpose other than to study the flora and fauna. Muir trekked south through Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida with little more than a map, a compass, a brush, soap, and a change of underclothes. He slept under the open stars when he couldn't find a family to take him in, and sometimes he walked upwards of 40 miles without having food. Though Muir had planned to sail to South America at the end of his journey, he contracted malaria and instead headed to California, where he would ultimately spend the majority of his life. Muir penned his adventure in A Thousand Mile Walk to the Gulf, which has become a classic naturalist text set against the backdrop of the post-Civil War South. In it, he makes loads of prescient observations, but none more arresting than his denunciation of the idea that God made nature as man's personal resource factory, that perhaps the Creator made nature for nature's sake, and the lives and feelings of every plant and animal matter just as much as our own. In this time of isolation, my family and I are sheltering in place at a campground in the Verde Valley of Arizona. I took an afternoon to walk in the woods along the rippling Verde River to set up a hammock and read, from the priest of the Church of Nature. The world, we are told, was made especially for man, a presumption not supported by all the facts. A numerous class of men are painfully astonished whenever they find anything, living or dead, in all God's universe, which they cannot eat or render in some way what they call useful to themselves. They have precise dogmatic insight of the intentions of the creator. And it's hardly possible to be guilty of irreverence in speaking of their God any more than of heathen idols. He is regarded as a civilized, law-abiding gentleman in favor either of republican form of government or a limited monarchy, believes in the literature and language of England, is a warm supporter of the English constitution and Sunday schools and missionary societies, and is as purely a manufactured article as any puppet of a half theater. With such views of the creator, it is of course not surprising that erroneous views should be entertained of the creation. To such properly trimmed people, the sheep for example, is an easy problem, food and clothing for us. Eating grass and daisies while by divine appointment for this predestined purpose on perceiving the demand for wool that would be occasioned by the eating of the apple in the Garden of Eden. In the same pleasant plan, whales are storehouses of oil for us to help out the stars in lighting our dark ways until the discovery of the Pennsylvania oil wells. Among plants, hemp, to say nothing of the cereals, is a case of evident destination for ships rigging, wrapping packages, and hanging the wicked. Cotton is another plain case of clothing. Iron was made for hammers and plows and lead for bullets, all intended for us. And so of other small handfuls of insignificant things. But if we should ask these profound expositors of God's intentions, how about those man-eating animals, lions, tigers, alligators, which smack their lips over raw man? Or about those myriads of noxious insects, destroy labor and drink his blood doubtless man was intended for food and drink for all these oh no not at all these are unresolvable difficulties connected with eden's apple and the devil why does water drown its lord why do so many minerals poison him why are so many plants and fishes deadly enemies why is the lord of creation subjected to the same laws of life as his subjects Oh, all these things are satanic, or in some way connected with the first garden. Now, it never seems to occur to these far-seeing teachers that nature's object in making animals and plants might possibly be, first of all, the happiness of each one of them, not the creation of all for the happiness of one. Why should man value himself as more than a small part of the one great unit of creation? And what creature of all that the Lord has taken the pains to make is not essential to the completeness of that unit, the cosmos? The universe would be incomplete without man, but it would also be incomplete without the smallest transmicroscopic creature that dwells beyond our conceitful eyes and knowledge. From the dust of the earth, from the common elementary fund, the Creator has made Homo sapiens. From the same material he has made every other creature, however noxious and insignificant to us. They are earth-born companions and our fellow mortals. The fearful good, the orthodox, of this laborious patchwork of modern civilization cry heresy on everyone whose sympathies reach a single hair's breadth beyond the boundary epidermis of our own species not content with taking all of Earth. They also claim the essential country as the only ones who possess this kind of souls for which that imponderable empire was planned. This star, our own good Earth, made many a successful journey around the heavens ere man was made, and whole kingdoms of creatures enjoyed existence and returned to dust ere man appeared to claim them. After human beings have also played their part in creation's plan, they too may disappear without any general burning or extraordinary commotion whatsoever. Plants are credited with but dim and uncertain sensation and minerals with positively none at all. But why may not even a mineral arrangement of matter be endowed with sensation of a kind that we in our blind exclusive perfection can have no manner of communication with? but I have wandered far from my object. I stated a page or two back that man claimed the earth was made for him. And I was going to say that venomous beasts, thorny plants, and deadly diseases of certain parts of the earth proved that the whole world was not made for him. When an animal from a tropical climate is taken to high latitudes, it may perish of cold. And we say that such an animal was never intended for so severe a climate. But when man betakes himself to sickly parts of the tropics and parishes, he cannot see that he was never intended for such deadly climates. No, he will rather accuse the first mother of the cause of the difficulty, though she may never have seen a fever district, or will consider it a providential chastisement for some self-invented form of sin. Furthermore, all uneatable and uncivilizable animals and all plants which carry prickles are deplorable evils, which, according to closet researchers of clergy, require the cleansing chemistry of universal planetary combustion. But more than not, as mankind requires burning as being in great part wicked, and if that transmundane furnace can also be applied and regulated as to smelt and purify us into conformity with the rest of the terrestrial creation, then the tophetization of the erratic genus Homo were a consummation devoutly to be prayed for. But glad to lead these ecclesiastical fires and blunders, I joyfully return to the immortal truth and immortal beauty of nature. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, with text from Chapter 6 of John Muir's A Thousand Mile Walk to the Gulf. If you enjoyed the show, we love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. For more great American destinations, give us a listen at the See America Podcast. Season 3 is now available wherever you listen to this one. If you're interested in RV travel, find us at the RV Miles Podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys as our wandering family on social media. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California. New York Island From the Redwood Forest To the Gulf Stream waters This land Was made For you and me Today's show Was sponsored by L.L. Bean Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.